ready for cannabis news and updates? Welcome to the LeBlanc CNE podcast with your host, Jerry Whiting. LeBlanc CNE, cannabis genetics, education, and consulting. Hi, this is Jerry Whiting, and that means this is a LeBlanc CNE podcast. This one is a little different. I gave an impromptu talk in June 2019 at Oberlin College in Ohio. Uh, in attendance were students from the Environmental Studies and Sustainability Programs. It was off the cuff. Um, it was at the classroom, paren, S-I-C, close paren, on the farm, as opposed to a classroom with a whiteboard, a projector, a microphone, and all of that. little rough. Sound isn't the best. I haven't even listened to it myself, so once I put it online, I'm going to listen to my own podcast. Once again, I'm talking about hemp CBD in Ohio at Oberlin College to students from the Environmental Studies and Sustainability Programs. Thanks. I want to speak now. My time is limited. Okay. I'm going to record this, make a podcast so you can listen to it at your leisure. Um, I've had coffee and I talk fast, but um, I think if it's sustainability, MMJ, hemp, and CBD, I'm your guy. sustainability permaculture as well as MMJ um, and um, uh, I, I used to, I until very very recently was in software and so I will end it with what we call it M, uh, AMA ask me anything so um, kind of a formal not semi-formal presentation but then feel free to pick my brain I'll tell you if I don't know or where you can look for it but I've been doing this for almost seven years uh, with medical marijuana and hemp, but this is not my first or second time at the rodeo. I'm 65, which means I've been smoking pot for 50 years. Um, I have been processing cannabis. Shit. I first did extraction in um, 73, 74 and 76, I think, 74, 75. So um, I know the plant. And I realized I was going to a trade show in Denver a couple months ago. <clears throat> Taking the elevator from the airport to the train to get into town, I realized, oh, I'm 65. Whoa, that means this is my 50th anniversary of working with Cannabis Sativa L. So um, I kind of know the plant. That's me. So uh, why are you here? What's your story? Don't all speak at once. <laughs> 
So is this just required? Did you give a shit about MMJ or are you just killing time? Cool. That's what I wanted to hear. How many are from Ohio? So I live in, I grew up here. I grew up in Cleveland, Shaker. Um, I went to Ann Arbor in 74 to 79, where it was a $5 fine. And I went to Boston to go to acupuncture school where it was a felony. Um, I have been in Seattle since 86. We legalized medical marijuana in 98 and recreational uh, five and a half years ago. Um, I work in the, I, my son and I worked in the medical market until it was folded into the rec market. Um, I have been a processor in the rec market for uh, a year and a half. Um, I don't do CBD in the rec market. I make old school Moroccan style hashish. Um, I mentioned I'm uh, 65, got out of high school in 72, and I like to smoke my youth. So my seed bank includes heirloom strains that <clears throat> I smoked in high school, and I make hash that I smoked in high school. Um, and uh, I'm an old guy, you know, I'm an elder in the community. So, what's that? I live in Seattle. No, I know. I live in Cascadia. I live in, this is Laurentia. I live in Cascadia. John, you must know Donnie in, in common. Donnie, which one? Works after. Well, Donnie, oh yeah. Who else? He's like my big brother. I've done it since we were kids. Oh, okay. Like, as he says, I was 10, he was seven. I grew up with Donnie. Oh, okay. No, we're fighting word chapter. It's the same thing. Okay. Cool. So, welcome. I'm starting to think. So, uh, so as I said, with your permission, I'm going to record this as a podcast because while I do uh, presentations, I've never done a podcast that tells the story. So again, my name is Jerry Whiting. Whiting in French is Leblanc. The company name is Leblanc CNE, Cannabis Negociant Eleveur. Um, I have a business model that is um, based on Bordeaux and uh, Burgundy growers, uh, brokers. So a Negociant is a broker. Negociant Eleveur is a grower broker. While I don't own all the hemp or CBD uh, cannabis in Washington State or the world, I have undue influence. I have an, what I modestly call a comprehensive seed bank. It includes uh, not just seeds, but pollen. Uh, I write a monthly hemp column for Northwest Leaf. Uh, I'm a broker. I do product development. I'm known for uh, um, tinctures and uh, topical products. Um, I do research. I am part of a contributing genetics to a three-year field trial out of Clemson, uh, growing hemp in a unique coastal um, uh, terroir. Um, what else do I do? Shit. Oh, I work with Phylos Bioscience, I, who sequences the cannabis genome. And so I've had some of the LeBlanc seed bank sequenced genetically. So taxonomy is broken in uh, cannabis sativa L, but some of us have a hint of a clue as to what's really going on. Um, I, what else do I do? Shit. Uh, so I, uh, Beacon Food Forest in Seattle, I went through the permaculture stewardship certification program. I'm the, 
Director of Permaculture and Sustainability for the Center for Cannabis Living in Seattle. Uh, who cares? Uh, a former board member for CAS, the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. I write a hemp column for Northwest Leaf. Uh, I'm tired of reciting my dictatorship CV. Oh, it's 15 acres. Um, it's in phase three. I, I, I went through the certification two years ago and told them during the application process that I did a bunch of stuff, but no, I was not interested in joining the Food Forest Posse as a regular volunteer, but wanted to take what I learned back to uh, cannabis and hemp cultivation, which they were totally cool with in Seattle. So I did do it, um, um, but I also grow uh, uh, living soil, probiotic soil. I do advanced composting based on Bukashi. My youngest son does Korean natural farming. We did a podcast about it last week um, where we teased each other about our respective voodoo. Um, I lecture and teach a lot. Um, hope to do a talk here in, um, at Canacon Detroit the second weekend in June. Uh, and who cares? That's the rest of it. So here's the story. Farm director for the George Jones Farm in, in Maine now. He is a Bukashi guy. He does. A, he did a presentation on, on Korean soil saving methods uh, to an Ellie Black student farm. No, it was PASA. He did it at the Pennsylvania Association of Sustainable Agriculture conference, which was a great one. Uh, I think two years ago. Yeah, he's a, so. Lot of it here, but it's, it's been done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, so LeBlanc, uh, in uh, so seven years ago, uh, this summer, I have three kids, I raised three boys. Uh, the older two developed a seizure disorder with the onset of adolescence. Um, Coleman, my middle son, approached me seven years ago and asked for his, he already had a medical marijuana card and he was using cannabis. Um, uh, in an uh, unsophisticated way, for lack of a better term, <clears throat> to address his seizure disorders. At a certain point, he approached and took me out to lunch, which was like a shock, and uh, threw his green card on the table and said, Dad, I want your help transitioning from pharma to cannabis. And he knew that he could come to me for a number of reasons. A, his dad's a vegetarian deadhead and smokes pot. But more importantly, I attended the Mingan School of Acupuncture and practiced Chinese medicine and natural healing in Boston uh, in the mid-80s. Um, the timing was good because an old friend from Ann Arbor, Martin A. Lee, Marty, uh, is the head of Project CBD and wrote uh, Smoke Signals, a Social History of Marijuana in America. Marty, among other activists, is a house guest during Hempfest, the third weekend in Seattle, with my wife and I what we affectionately call the Hempfest Hostel. So I said, hey, I don't know much about it, um, but don't worry, Marty will be here in two and a half weeks for Hempfest. Marty did come. He spent almost a week with us. By the end of that time, I fucking knew CBD cold. And the first issue was um, finding medicine. There, this is, so this is seven years ago. Uh, testing, looking for cannabinoid levels was just being done. And without testing, you can't tell which cultivars have CBD or whatever else is in there. So um, fast forward, 
Marty taught me the basics and off I went. The first thing Coleman and I had to do was to find medicine. There wasn't much. At that point, by, um, by doing a cannabinoid profile using chromatography, <clears throat> HPLC, not gas spectrometry, DC, um, people were identifying one in 500 samples as testing greater than 4% CBD. And 4% was sort of the trigger point. Um, the first plants I collected, I lovingly called my um, sideshow of mutants. These were um, outliers. Uh, these were often not deliberately bred CBD-rich strains, but something that happened to have CBD. Uh, I began to collect them and grow them and make medicine out of them because I had done chemistry around cannabis in the 70s in both Cleveland and Ann Arbor. I had a head start. But more importantly for Coleman, my son, and others was I had been doing infused vodkas and bitters uh, for years, like 15 years, and so for friends and family. So when, uh, when faced with the idea of taking things out of plant material using ethanol, it's like, fuck, I've done this before. So I came in with experience, but I also have used the same testing lab for six and a half years. And uh, the motto, of course, is measure and test, measure and test, measure and test. So I changed one thing every time. Eventually, I got to the point where um, I could make consistent uh, cannabis preparations, hitting my numbers, um, and word spread. I don't advertise. I barely, I, I mean, I have toy business cards. I'm that guy. Well, I'm from Cleveland. As we say in Cleveland, I got a guy. And so my name comes up a bunch. And it, so to fast forward, Coleman and I started this company. He ended up becoming a CO2 extractor, making cannabis oil. He also worked in a couple of well-known dispensaries in Seattle. He and I was doing the, the, the growing the plants and the prep to the stuff and making the final medicine with what he did out of the CO2 extractor. Long story short, three years ago, May 24th, the anniversary is coming up, Coleman died of a seizure. Um, he had just seen his neurologist for a regularly scheduled appointment, and the um, disorder is called SUDEP, sudden unexplained death in epilepsy. Uneventful one-hour appointment, went downstairs, started his car, never got here, died. Um, needless to say, it was a life-changing experience, but it totally propelled me. If I wasn't passionate about this work before, I am now. Uh, in so Seattle has a very, very um, evolved cannabis community, what we affectionately call the cannabis. Uh, I am honored to, and flattered that the Canna family um, regards me as an elder. Uh, the only reason I'm standing here today is that when Coleman died, the Canna family was there for me. And I, uh, I'm fond of saying, I take care of the Canna family, the Canna family takes care of me. So Coleman and I distributed clones of CBD strains across the state and around the, around the country. And uh, um, uh, uh, it's still a family business. My younger son is coming on doing soil science. Uh, he does EM1, uh, Korean natural farming. And as of, what's today, Friday? As of nine days ago, he's doing biochar. Uh, and he's complete freaking nerd like his dad. And so he's got the science down. Another paper I want he and his partner to write up um, in talking with farmer farmers, conventional farmers who want to transition to hemp, um, 
hippies who run the hemp industry, yeah, I want to see that it's less than 0.3% delta-9 THC, so that it's hemp, not pot, but I also want to see lab results that says no pesticides, no heavy metals. So while the laws and rules and regs don't say it has to be organic, because hippies founded and run the hemp industry, brokers like me, I won't touch your son of a bitch. I won't touch your, your crop if it's toxic. I quit eating meat in 1970. I don't do GMO. I don't do Roundup. And I'm not selling what I don't do. Oh, my brother's here. So when I talk about the medicine I make, the tincture is made using organic hemp from Oregon and organic kosher vegetable glycerin. Nothing else. I got the voodoo. And um, what I tell people is, if I only use ingredients, I would serve my own mother at the Thanksgiving dinner table. The footnote being, there are no hydrocarbons, there's no iso, no isopropyl alcohol, there's no bullshit. And in fact, it's two ingredients. Um, there's, the workflow is pretty advanced, but, you know. Uh, so, um, uh, now, uh, now that the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, aka the Farm Bill, was signed by the orange one, uh, December 20th, hemp on a federal level is no longer a Schedule 1 drug. <clears throat> Thank you. It is Schedule 5, and control went from the DEA to the FDA. Uh, it also uh, allows interstate commerce. The, control, the implementation of hemp is left to the individual state's Department of Agriculture. Uh, fortunately, uh, a handful of us lobbied the state of Washington to get the hemp law, Bill, House Bill 1401, to do what we wanted, and the governor signed it a day early, and when I go home, I'm part of a group growing 37 fucking acres worth of hemp and other crops. I couldn't be happy. the, happier. the part of 1401 that I lobbied for and won um, was section 6 and 7 that talked about the cultivars that could be brought into the state. There's been a 70, 75-year hiatus and a gap in cultivation of hemp in the U.S., so it's a catch-22. If a farmer hasn't grown it before, what do you plant? So um, we said, hey, look, you've got to let us bring in anything. And so the, <laughs> the result of six and, six and seven says, oh, yeah, just give us a unique name and where you got it. So I've downloaded the PDF application. I will file it next week when I get home. What do you have? I need a unique name. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Where did you get it? The black market. I'm not laughing, you know? Now, that's not true, but I have cultivars, and this is a big deal. So hemp is being grown in the U.S. today, short-term, for CBD extraction, for all the Charlotte Figgy, Sanjay Gupta kinds of things. And I'm a big proponent, but that's the tip of the iceberg and a false peak as we say, climbing mountains. The real summit to be climbed, food, fuel, fiber. So I'm growing seed crops this year. Growing CBD for bulk, yeah, whatever, big deal. I've got outliers. i got shit nobody else has. I've got this comprehensive hemp seed bank. So I'm growing seed crops, you know, um, just wild outliers that no one else has because CBD production is two or three year window before it becomes like corn, soybeans, hard winter wheat, and cotton. I want small artisan family farms to survive. 
and going up against ABCD, Archer, Daniels, Midland, <clears throat> you know, Bayer, uh, Cargill, uh, Dreyfus, you're not, you're not going to win. Farmers are under siege, especially black farmers and people of color, women-owned farms. Um, I'm making an effort to – I broker seeds. I'm selling seeds to people of color way below market price. If it's six or 8000 I'm asking 3200 uh, If you have to buy a pound from the big guys, I'll sell you a quarter pound um, to make that accessible. So, um, you know, I, mean, I can go on forever in a day, but, you know, in terms of medical marijuana, it's increasingly being passed at the legislative level, not waiting for voters at the November polls across the country. Yes, it's the foot in the door to full legalization. The war on drugs has been completely race and politically motivated since day one. I do not use the word marijuana because that was used by Harry Anslinger to demonize it by associating it with um, sisters and brothers of Hispanic background. Total BS. We go to Richard Nixon in the war on drugs. Um, he wanted to silence the Black Panther Party and the anti-war movement. They were all, and he did so by criminalizing um, marijuana to use it as a tool against them. I speak with some authority on this because my family is very close with the elders in the Black Panther Party, um, very, very close. And I know that the, in, in Berkeley, the publisher of the Berkeley Bar, Stewart was the dealer for the party, for the community. And, um, and um, I, know the code name that the Panthers used on the phone during COINTELPRO when they're being wiretapped by the FBI. But my point is, Nixon was true, was, was right, in that the anti-war movement and the Black Panthers were tied at the hip. If he viewed them as being the enemy, uh, one weapon to use against them was getting in between them in their recreant of choice, or DOC, drug of choice. So the war on drugs has always been racially motivated, politically as well. It was completely bullshit. <laughs> Before Anslinger demonized and made it illegal, 40% of the U.S. pharmacopoeia was cannabis-based. And Donnie Wirtschafter, our mutual friend down in Guysville near Athens, has a museum of cannabis artifacts, the second largest in the world, that proves it. So the farm in Oxford, Mississippi at Old Miss is bullshit. Um, they know it. Um, they actually, the government put out a silent call looking for hemp genetics, and friends are like, you going to give me your stuff? Hell no! They put us in jail. And so I talk about those who are still incarcerated as being prisoners of war. If it was a war on drugs, these are POWs. There are Panthers still inside. There's cannabis prisoners still inside. The war on drugs isn't over, even if we legalize it from today forward, until those people are giving amnesty and reparations. Period. No compromise. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, where's it going to go? So, yes, CBD works. Here's the real deal. Um, industrial hemp is legally defined as 0.3% Delta-9 THC by dry weight. What does that mean? Cannabis has cannabinoids and terpenes. Let's talk about cannabinoids like THC, CBD, CBN, CBG, et cetera, et cetera. Delta-9... THC is the intoxicant when you smoke it. And the government says getting high is unacceptable. Therefore, if a cannabis sativa L cultivar doesn't get you high, it's okay. Because it isn't a drug. Okay, a little botany here. Um, 
0.3 was an offhand remark. It was never meant to be made into law, number one. Uh, people will talk about classifying cannabis sativa L, indica sativa ruderalis. All right, all right, let's get something straight. No such thing. Uh, the taxonomy is broken. I won't get into the story as to how it got broken, but the, first of all, they are not strains. They are cultivars. Bacteria and viruses have strains. Plants have cultivars. When someone says you're pheno hunting, you're you're not. You're just, that's not what you're doing. Phenotypical expression is in relation to the terroir and everything else. You aren't pheno hunting. You're actually searching for the right genotype. Little botany correction of the vocabulary. So, um, indica sativa hybrid, indica sativa ruderalis. These are in the modern world, taxonomically not supported. The way that we classify cannabis sativa, type one, type two, type three. A type, so, so the plant makes, um, are there markers? Oh, cool. So, um, so here's the plant. So the plant in its natural form makes um, a compound called CBG, which is actually a terpene, but we'll get into that now. And then depending upon the genes and alleles that are turned on, um, it makes, it can only make a finite amount of CBG, okay? So then there's a, a breakdown. It either makes THC acid synthase or CBD acid synthase. And the total amount it makes can't exceed the amount of CBG, right? If you have 10 here, it can be 1 in 9, 9 in 1, 2 in 7, whatever, because you can't get 15 out of it. So um, if the synthase is available, the plant makes dominantly THC acid. It does not get you high, but it has healing effects. Same thing with CBDA. CBD acid has healing effects, but not what CBD is um, known for. This is okay because then there are a number of different things, a number of different things that CBDA can be converted to either in the plant or by heating it. If you eat pot, you don't get high. You'll get well because THCA is used for restless leg syndrome, the auras before seizures, and a bunch of other stuff, but you don't get stoned. So, um, here's the part that's another part that's stupid about the industrial hemp law. It only talks about Delta nine THC. That's the evil one that gets you high. I have news for you. If so, you can't eat it and get stoned, but the first person who used it as kindling or walked past a burning bush, uh, THCA gets converted to Delta nine in the presence of heat. But if you eat it, you get Delta 11. You get stoned, but they're slightly different. You get that quick up and down with smoking. With eating, you get the... So for pain control, it's actually better to eat it because you get a longer lasting effect and hopefully your next dose overlaps like that. So the fact that the feds say Delta-9 is the only cannabinoid we define hemp back because it won't get you stoned. Dude, the plant makes over, like 85% of what the plant makes is 
where 90% is the acid form. And if you heat it and eat it, you get delta 11, which actually gets you just as stoned. We don't talk about that. Well, it depends. Eating, it depends. I trust me. I I make products. I could we could go on, but this is not a lab class. It's lecture. Um, so anyway, so so here's the deal. So from from uh, THCA, you can get delta nine, delta eight, delta eleven, uh, CBN couch lock, uh, uh, THCV, which is uh, the odd of the odd. The minor cannabinoid usually found in South African cultivars that has uh, impact on sugar metabolism for diabetes and uh, weight control. Uh, rare, uh, coveted, expensive, uh, and there are American cultivars that, or non-African that do have these. Anyway, so enough with the chemistry. Uh, oh, here's what I was going to say it, lastly. So everyone is focused on CBD because that's the good guy. The problem is... The plant has um, a whole host of, um, of cannabinoids and terpenes. Uh, there are acknowledged to be somewhere between 50 and 100 cannabinoids and 150 to 200 terpenes. Terpenes are these uh, aromatic, volatile things that give it its taste and smell. And terpenes color the impact of the cannabinoids. So if you have a one-to-one -one THC CBD cultivar and you have a one-to-one -one, and you have a one-to-one, -one, they may all act differently depending upon the complementary terpenes. So hers has linalool, which is from lavender, and it's a relaxing downer. You've got one that has myrcene found in mangoes, but that gives you couch lock, and you're going to be like totally relaxed. And mine has alpha-pinene, which is like a sativa high, upbeat, creative, and loudmouth and talking fast, which I don't really need. So um, <laughs> what I say is the cannabinoids do the heavy lifting, and the terpenes color the experience. So we can all agree that 440 cycles per second is a concert A. It sounds one way on a tuning fork, another way in a Stradivarius, and yet another way on that heavy metal guitar down there. It all makes the oscilloscope go 440, but it colors the experience, not just our ear, but how we react emotionally. So if you do reductionist chemistry and remove everything this wonderful plant has to offer and only pull out the CBD, yes, you can get a 99% pure crystal, but that pure CBD bears little resemblance to the plant that it came from. It's called the entourage effect. It's the synergetic effect of all of the compounds together. Excuse me, Ethan Russo, uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, as a neurologist, one of the world's best can cannabis chemists, lives in Seattle, someone I know very well. I actually see him at an event we're both speaking at next weekend. Um, Ethan talks about um, the entourage effect and the fact that CBD in the presence of THC is two and a half to three times as effective as CBD alone. So what the big thing is now is raising industrial hemp because it's high in CBD and has less than 0,3 THC, therefore legal. But then processing that to pull out everything except CBD and then mix that with coconut oil or alcohol, whatever and call it a product. Yes, you get relief. You don't get cured. And, um, and the thing is, the, the, um, the effect of something that is, um, how would I say this? 
Um, so this is amount over here, and this is effectiveness, let's say. Okay, so so now I can do this. I have to think about this. So if you're doing, uh, if this is CBD only, with the increase in dose, it flattens out. If you do, uh, oh, sorry, a uh, whole plant, which in Colorado is called um, full spectrum, as you increase the dose, the effectiveness goes up without a ceiling. Um, so the deal is, <clears throat> you know, Americans, bigger is better, more must be better yet. So if you use a CBD isolate or distillate, that reductionist chemistry, a one-ounce bottle might have 500, 1,000, 3,000 milligrams of CBD. Oh, the ones that I make, whole plant, aggressively whole plant, as taught by Ethan, has, uh, you can read the label. So what I make doesn't need that much. Um, I, this has got, so an ounce is 30 milligrams, milliliters, I have 30 milligrams. It's a milligram per milliliter. So I go up against people who say, oh yeah, I've got, so you've got something that's got 3,000 milligrams a bottle. Shit! I make whole batches of gallons and doesn't have that much in it. But I have the pleasure uh, of sitting in the audience when Ethan gives talks, which he does three, four times a year, and they're all different, and I've taken notes and uh, I embarrassed myself going up and going, dude, dude, I like do everything you say, and it totally works. Um, and he just chuckles. Oh, I, I understand. It's yeah, yeah. So, so the first lesson is is that whole plant, aka full spectrum, works better than reductionist chemistry. So, looking at the label and doing a quantitative uh, side by side comparison doesn't do you any good. It's the context within which any cannabinoid or terpene exists that determines its effectiveness. So just as there are type 1, type 2, and type 3 plants, I didn't finish that part. So um, a type 1 is um, all THC, and that that's path for the CBD synthase is not turned on by the chain of genes. A type 2 is a mixed THC-CBD. And a type 3, you got it, is all CBD. And what this says is that a type 1, you get uh, THCA synthase, which makes THC in all the variations. You get both THCA synthase and CBDA synthase. And that's why you get both. And over here, you only get, you got it, CBDA synthase. Forget Indica, sativa, ruderalis, hybrid. This is the real classification of cannabis based on the genetics, and the rest is bullshit. Now you know more than 99% of the population. That was worth the price of admission. Yes, it really, it's a big deal. It's Richard Evan Schultz, Harvard botany guy, misidentified a sample from Afghanistan and called it um, cannabis uh, Afghani, and it was a mistake. It was literally a mislabeling problem that's gotten passed forward for years, and it's it's just wrong. So, so yeah, this is a big deal. Now, the tinctures that I make, I have three formulas. 
one, two, and three. The market loves one-to-one THC CBD. It's the middle of the bell curve. It rings everyone's bells, and it works. People with seizure disorders uh, and some other conditions and those who can't afford to have any THC for fear of failing a drug test like the third formulation, which is what I'm passing around because it's legal to bring to Ohio. Type 1, the first formulation, is um, THC-centric for those with cancer because cancer cells self-destruct in the presence of THC. So um, uh, that's like ready for the ask me anything because I could go on forever. But, so for, in terms of, of cannabis medicine, yes, it works. Does it work for everything? Hell no. Are all cannabis preparations, I mean, by cannabis, I mean uh, pot and hemp. Are they all the same? Absolutely not. Are some of them toxic? You bet. Are many of the CBD products in the channel right now snake oil? Undeniably. Just total garbage. I don't name names, but I could if you ask me. <laughs> but uh, that's what I do. So here's the deal I will leave you with. I have a website at leblancini.com. So whiting in French, cannabis negociate elevé. So the French thing, I had French in school for a bunch of years. And so the business model is based on the Bordeaux grower brokers. Um, my last name in French is Whiting, same with his last name. Um, in the tracking, the legal software system in Washington State, I had to register my vehicle in order to transfer cannabis around the state. And the name of my truck is Camion, um, truck in French. Oh, I make hashish, Moroccan style. Um, I call them pastilles. You don't eat them, but they're round and they have LB for LeBlanc stamped in them. It's a cult product where I come from. I'm known for that. So there's a bunch <laughs> of French jokes. Oh, and the, uh, one, one flavor uh, of hash I have on the market now is called soup du jour. You know, it's like this whole French thing. But really, it, the, the negotiation éleveur is something that I, I realized back in the medical days that people go to work do their job and go home. And there's no bee that goes around the garden and pollinates everyone, and that's what I do. So I drive a lot in my truck. I'm a broker. Everyone knows me. Everyone trusts me. Um, and as a result, so when people grow cannabis and they get a married John, not a married Jane, yo, Jerry, I got a boy. Got pollen. Interested? Hell yeah! Because everyone rips out the males when you want to breed there, you have a bunch of hens and no roosters. Mm -hmm. I got a guy. And my freezer, I say this, I have a seed bank. I have a genetic collection. Hell, I have mother plants to clone parked in um, Denver. You know, being from software, you know, belt, suspenders, duct tape, and rope. The seed bank is actually backed up in different tectonic plates because I live in an earthquake zone. <laughs> So anyway, uh, uh, here's the other thing. So there's a, a page on hemp. That's a page called Northwest Leaf that has my columns in Northwest Leaf magazine. And um, there's a page of the podcasts. 
And guess what my email is? It's leblancini at gmail. Oh, right. So I, I have some of my partners grew in Nevada and I elected to not because Nevada is toxic and just scamville. Um, Pahrump County has a great water table and a very liberal government and much of the hemp and cannabis cultivation is in Nye County, Pahrump being the center of it. Unfortunately, the tweakers, of which there are a bazillion in Pahrump, couldn't tell the difference, nor did they care, the difference between pot and hemp, and they were rustling. So it does happen, and it was actually, but there aren't deer in Pahrump, it's the desert, for God's sake, Mojave Desert. But um, yeah, people do steal it, you know, I mean, and anyway. So yeah, I, so here's the deal. I'm providing to the next. Oh, people steal everything. You got it. I want it. Um, so I, LeBlanc is supplying genetics to this uh, three-year study, uh, Clemson. Um, I would love to have another institution of higher learning grow the same cultivars, if not this year, the second and third years, to provide controls to this unique coastal strip to say these cultivars grew similarly in the southeast, but when grown at Oberlin or University of Washington or whatever, we can see what the cultivars did in another terroir. So that's sort of this conversation. The Ohio hemp law will not take effect until March 2020. Um, I'd love to have someone other than Ohio State be a partner in this in Ohio, because I don't really care about Ohio State in the least. I used to live in Ann Arbor, so... Michigan. Um, I know, I know, I know. Oh, well, it's hard to hear that. Uh, but yeah, that's, you know, these are the, oh, and the last resource is Project CBD's website. This is my old friend, Marty Lee, uh, down in the Emerald Triangle. Uh, he's written the book, Smoke Signals, Social History of Marijuana in America. Um, He'll actually be at this conference with everybody else next weekend. He's going to come and stay with us again at the Hempfest Hostel. Um, but, yeah, it will definitely be doing podcasts and video. Uh, so visit the site now and then come back to LeBlanc in two weeks and watch the two of us make fools of ourselves. But, anyway, thanks for having me here. Uh, so AMA, ask me anything. Oh, uh, Smoke Signals. Uh, Martin A. Lee. Marty. You know, we have, we've known each other so long, we still call each other by nicknames that don't bear resemblance to our professional personas. It's sort of funny. Doc. Doc Elmo. I, I have a question. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the spectrum of products that this hemp industry will be oh. opening up? So everyone's glommed on to CBD because it's like the new black. 
Um, and it serves its purpose and it, and it will settle itself out into real medicine and that's great. Um, historically, the plant has been used for its fiber. So rope, clothing, um, more recently hempcrete uh, from the fiber. Um, I think that's going to be a big deal. I live in the Northwest where they clear cut trees to make throwaway stuff like paper and chopsticks and houses. Um, so that is going to be a big market. The other one that I'm really jazzed about, I eat hemp in some form or another probably two times a day. I mean, I drink hemp milk because I'm vegetarian while I sometimes add cow paste, uh, cow milk to it. You know, hemp milk is just, and I do it at Starbucks and everywhere I go in unliberated territory. Hi, do you have hemp milk? You really should, you know, it's got omega-3 and omega-6, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but where I come from, it's pretty common because medical's been legal since 98, rec, and um, you ever hear a BC bud, you know, Mark Emery? Back when you had to buy seeds online from someplace, there was an American who went to Canada, Mark Emery, and his wife, um, uh, not Jory. But anyway, um, he's gone to prison. He's back out again. Living in Seattle, two hours away from Vancouver, BC Bud made its way across the border all the time. So there's been an incredible cannabis culture in Cascadia, Cascadia being that coastal region, that ecosystem that bioregion from southwest to wet Alaska through the west side of the mountains in British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Northern California. I don't buy the map that includes eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, and God forbid, Idaho. Just because you all live on the same rock doesn't mean you vote, eat, worship, <laughs> or live like me. So we can outbuy eastern Washington, eastern Oregon. We don't need them as citizens. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I'm confused because I like buy hemp seeds at the grocery store yes. and eat them. So like, what's the difference between like those and the hemp that's just been legalized? Um, nothing. The hemp grown for food also has less than zero three delta nine. Um, they are cultivars that the seed itself is the primary objective. And so you're like, I have one sizzle the engine named after my son's DJ name um, that we're pretty sure it's a feral Chinese one. The phylos, the people who sequence it, we look at this and go, it hasn't been sequenced yet, but I'll bet this is the food one. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure either food and or oil. So I'm growing a huge seed crop of it. So what you and I buy, dehulled hemp seeds, same thing, grown in Manitoba by Mennonites, just bought out by one of the big cannabis companies. Um, there's no CBD in those cultivars. Um, they're grown for the seeds. Therefore, you want boys and girls, Mary Janes and Mary Johns. And um, I won't say it's not good for anything else, but it's great food. I, you know, it's wonderful food. Is it the highest percentage of digestible protein? Yeah, and it's omega-3, omega-6 um, uh, oil's in the right balance, and, um, you know, for all the reasons hemp is good, it takes less water to grow it, less fertilizer, it's pest-resistant, regenerates the soil. It's just, you know, it's the reason why, this is Rob Clark's book, America, uh, Americans, haha, humans of hemp have coexisted for millennia. The idea that Rob puts forth is that um, when we were nomadic, um, hunter-fisher-gatherers, um, there were patterns that we migrated and roamed. And uh, hemp seeds were great food. 
and you would thresh them in the where you were, and some of them would drop, and when you came back next year or two years later, they were growing feral. And the waste that these small clans left when they trampled grass, left excrement and food waste, et cetera, et cetera, served as food for these feral populations. And after a while, uh, not only did it like rats, were they in places where people lived, they became localized indigenous and heirlooms to that area and began to differentiate themselves taxonomically by virtue of their location. So, um, I could start and ask something see it's here. So, uh, so my thing is, as, you know, I had a barcode software company so I'm what I call COCD, constructively OCD. I collect genetics and I collect art and I'm really, I mark my socks. So I'm like really this pattern guy. The reason I'm rushing to collect all of these hemp genetics now is that the wild feral vintage heirloom stuff is going to disappear at an increasing rate, especially the U.S. hemp for victory Second World War survivors, because people who plant acres of pot or hemp are going to have pollen flying through the air. And if I don't go out this fall and snag what I can, I'll never find pure domestic American cultivars again. So people have sort of whispered, you come to Oklahoma, I'll take you to the family farm. Indiana, drive down this road, it's on the left. So, and I do have, not enough, but, yes. Get them out? So we just did a law in, uh, I just got the um, email update on the legislation going through uh, Washington. We did pass limited amnesty for uh, marijuana. It's a big deal. So HempFest is in its 28, 28th year in Seattle, um, the world's largest uh, protestable. People say, well, it's been legal. Why do you need to, to rally every summer about cannabis? Well, it, the way I define it is we're in a period where hemp and cannabis are less illegal with fine print. So... Um, there are still times when a plant can land you behind bars. You need to advocate for not only the elimination of those current laws, but amnesty for those. Um, uh, sensible drug policy. Um, there are, so I used to, so I was on the board of CAST, which is more policy oriented, and I stepped down because while I totally respect that level of activ activism, it's not what I'm focused on. But there are groups um, that are working, and it does work. I mean, we just passed limited amnesty for people. And there are prisoners who are still inside. Uh, we do need to get them out. Thanks for bringing that up, because it's totally unacceptable. It is. Usage rates between European Americans and African Americans is equal. Arrest rates are three times higher for African Americans. Incarcer incarceration rates are six times higher. And the real double whammy is um, whether it's cannabis or hemp, 
have to be over 21 without a felony record. And a lot of people arrested are people of color and are therefore locked out of the legal market. So I've done work the last three years around diversity in the cannabis space. Um, and it's like, first of all, um, we need to remove the requirement that you be uh, a non-felon or even 10 years, to, you know, um, that ain't right. And is it New Jersey where they're now making noise or Massachusetts about black people should be given, with records should be given first shot at licenses um, before others. So let me, I spoke at Cleveland Normal a couple of years ago and I had to correct a misconception there. <clears throat> National Organization for Marijuana Laws. So someone in front of me made a comment about it being um, white males running the cannabis industry. And my correction when my turn came to speak was, yeah, maybe where you are, not in Seattle. I will say that a fair number of sisters run the fucking industry where I go. The Cannabis Alliance, the Professional Association, both, hell, everyone. The president, executive director, and staff member are all women. And I don't mean they are making coffee and taking notes. These are like powerful sisters who I bow down before. And a number of the can cannabis companies are run by women, including one of the ones that I work for, uh, Puff and Farm, runs, it's a husband and wife team, that's how I say a wife and husband team. Dr. Jay Stefano was a naturopath, went to Bastyr, um, arguably the, one of the best cannabis farms in the country, uh, subject of a five-page article in High Times. Uh, Jeff Church um, does the CO2 extraction. <laughs> Just wins awards, although, I mean, you know, so I, when I was on cast, we put on a festival. It's, like, it's not a cup. It's called the Terpestible. It's an educational event around terpenes. Um, I recused myself before this year. Last year at the Terpestible, when people found out that Jeff Church had entered, entries went up. I know he's going to win. I want to see how I place against him. So when people say, oh, it's all white men. Yeah kind of other places, but uh, we're different. Uh, there's, they're like, God bless, you know, there's, and these are, these are my Canada sisters, and you know, oh, so we have a provision unique in the country in Washington called Chava. This is a funny one. So, uh, Al Warner, my dear Canada sister, has a company of uh, Cannabis Basics that makes topical products. And she's a really good um, formulation kind of person, compounding herbalist. She had a, a, a rep sponsor and get Chaba legislation passed word for word. Cannabis, health, and beauty aids. The idea is if it's grown in the legal rec system but has less than 0.3 uh, THC, you can pull it out of the restrictive and and closed recreational system, and it enters enters gen pop, general population. So you have stems or roots or waste that's less than zero three delta nine. You can bring it out into the real world and make products that can be sold anywhere. And she has. And so Chaba is because of uh, Warner. I mean, she. And Ann Rivers was the woman who sponsored it in the legislature. So women rule where I come from. It's really refreshing because they bring a decidedly non-male European influence to the industry. It's 
it's different. And when LeBlanc, okay, it might be discriminatory. I'm trying to put together the darkest cannabis company in Mass in Washington State. You know, it's like, no, I'm not discriminating against you. I'm just reaching over you for that person over there because there is an imbalance. And um, and I know some folks that are uh, really badasses of what they do. So, yo. Are you prepared? Well, the middle of the country, because the East Coast, you know, Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, New York are doing it. New Hampshire, Wednesday, shoot, Chris Christie. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I don't know. I will say this. I look at the map. You know, I forget which state just passed laws the other day. Um, uh, for de for decrimming up to half, what was I just reading about it? anyway. Some state just like Ohio, it's decrimmed up to what 15 grams and 30 grams, the lid and an ounce. Um, it's a fine, uh, not even a misdemeanor until over an ounce. Shit, I come here with you know 24.99 grams and 100 or was it 250 bucks in cash in my pocket? Friends of mine yell at me, You can't do that. Actually, I just did which is why you're yelling at me. And my attitude is sometimes you need to throw tea in the harbor in order to be a patriot. So civil disobedience, I've done anti-war work, anti-nuclear work at Seabrook. Oh, you were there. Oh, yeah. We've never told our parents about the time that a state trooper had a billy stick around his neck and I'm pulling on the other end playing cat and mouse in the woods. All power of the people. I forgot about that. <laughs> So, yeah, so, you know, I mean, at a certain point, and I was asked by one of the activists a couple weeks ago, but so are you, when you grow, are you, no, I'm not licensed, I'm a felon, motherfucker, that's what I do. I have no problem with that, because healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Oh, Washington? Kind of legal? It's the only state that's legalized cannabis that doesn't allow home grow. See, that's the expression we all have. Like, no, no, you can buy it and pay a 37 or 35 percent excise tax plus a 10.01 percent sales tax, but you can't grow it. What do people in Seattle do? They grow it. The police don't care. I mean, the, actually, the voters told. So here's how you act. How you, in my humble opinion, here's thoughts for activism at a local level. You start. So Seattle voters voters told the Seattle Police Department to make simple possession their lowest priority. It wasn't legalized, but they said, if your dog pisses on the sidewalk, the cop stops you before me for smoking a joint. That's the law. The officer has no choice. Your dog shits on the sidewalk. You get the ticket. I'm done with the joint, and I go home free. I can't grow the joint, but the, it's... So Detroit decriminalized several years ago. They just legalized November. But the reason Michigan has this off-the-hook thing going on, they said, hey, look, you know, people are poor. They need to have an underground economy, and it's not a problem. So Detroit decrimmed. Is that the toe and the foot in the door? Yes, it is. And so when some people say, oh, hemp, you can't tell it from cannabis. And so if we legalize hemp, it opens the door to people ODing on pot. First of all, you cannot OD on cannabis. I asked my chemist friends, what to LD50, what lethal dose kills 50% of the population? 
What's the LD50 of THC? And Steve looked at me and said, you know, I did the math. And it was like, I forget the amount. It was like, dude, you're eating bowls like, like Cheerios. You have, he goes, yeah, you can do it on paper. No one has ever died from OD. You can't. I mean, you, you it's just, you look at it, really, I would never do that. Even if you had that much pure THC in front of you, you'd probably go to sleep before you finish the last <laughs> So, yeah, I still was a meme on Facebook the other day. Um, uh, cannabis is so good as medicine, Some many people take it just for the side effects. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm from Portland. PDX! <laughs> Amen. Doug <Dr>. Fur. <laughs> Seeing all these reports, and it's like at the end of each year, there's like millions of pounds of bud. Oh, dear God, okay, let's talk about Oregon. Oregon is off the hook, it is completely crunchy, it is completely Birkenstock, you know. So, here's the deal Oregon grew southwest, uh, Cape Junction, Ashland, Medford, you know. So, southwest Oregon is the northern part of the Emerald Triangle, both culturally, botanically, and in terms of the terroir. Uh, so Oregon grew so much pot 2017, it got the Fed's attention because it was two and a half, three times what the legal market could consume. And that's just the stuff that's reported. Many of those pot farmers flipped to hemp last summer, no cameras, no tracking software. And at this point, hemp sells for more a pound than pot. So there's a smokable market, not just the bulk market. I can't, I, <laughs> so people want to do pre-rolls of hemp because it's great. And some of it tastes really good because it's not ditch wheat. It actually has terpenes and has flavor and has healing effects. So I had a deal where I brokered eight pounds and da da da, da And it was going to go to pre-rolls. Now it's caught on the New York City smoke markets. The smoke shops want to sell this. Started out beginning of harvest last year, 200 bucks a pound for that flour. Now, I have someone who wants to buy 400 pounds as an initial order, and I can't find it, and it's 350 to 400 bucks a pound. Pot in Oregon sells for less than that. Well, Jerry, how much did they grow last year? The Oregon Industrial Hemp Harvest 2018. Take a guess. You're from PDX. How much y'all home companies grow back there? Oh, five million pounds. Times two. 10 million pounds. I thought when harvest came in, I know, look, see? <laughs> no. So that's number one. And one person who I'm going to be introduced to dried 10% of the harvest. And last I heard, he was sitting on a million pounds of unsold biomass. I thought it would be sold out by February, March. I'm. <clears throat> I'm trying to sell, you know, there's 21,000 pounds here and there's 14,000 there, you know, and, and we're still moving stuff. Now, granted, uh, you'll see in the hemp page, I have a, uh, some white papers for farmers, what I call the milk model. So top to the plant to the bottom, heavy whipping cream, half and half, whole milk, 2% skim. As you go down the plant, there's less trichomes and less good chemistry. So obviously the top of the plant sells for a higher price than the bottom. People have bought all of the heavy whipping cream out of Oregon. And now you're seeing um, scarce half and half, a lot of whole milk and a lot of 
2%, because people have bought the top and the bottom, and that $400 a pound smokable New York, smoke, New York City smoke shop shit, I am growing so much of that this year. My goal is to grow, you know, 100 pounds of it. 100 plants, rather, and I hope to get more than a pound a plant. And so pot in your home state at a wholesale level is cheaper than hemp flour, um, half and half whipping cream. And we can't find it. You know, if this guy said, let's start with 400 pounds, and I'll do 1,000 pounds at a time. I wish I could find the first pound, but I'm growing as much as I can this year. So, yeah, Oregon, Oregon is off the hook. Now, here's a trivia question. Colorado last year, Colorado grew the most. Oregon was second. Guess which state, summer of 2018, grew the most industrial hemp? You'd think. Guess again. Big Sky. I know. And I get the phone call in August, beginning of September. Hi, Jerry. I'm working with a farm up in Montana. They grew 400 acres, and we have some questions. Shoot, Eric. Well, how do we dry it? What do you have for a drying shed? That's why I'm calling you. You grew 400 acres, and you didn't think about how you're going to harvest it? <laughs> Dumbass. But Montana surprised everyone. Because they have cattle ranches of huge proportion, not that they can harvest it properly and sell it for top price, but Montana was the third largest cultivation state last year. Colorado, Kentucky, Oregon, North Dakota, Minnesota, New York, Montana. Not true. Nope. Nope. That one's from Kristen. It's wrong. Oh, I read. I read that this morning. No. Uh, Like today's issue. No, no, no. It's Montana, and people were all like, "Whoa, really?" Now, I will have great success buying other people's failures this year. Because like Eric calling saying, I got a client with 400 acres, how do we harvest it? Most farmers new to hemp this year will screw up the harvest. And I'm gonna buy it way cheap. And you know, not, not my problem. You know, I didn't, I didn't undermine you, but not, so for instance, last year I helped Wisconsin get started. I taught a couple days to farmer farmers, Carhartt, you know, John Deere, not hippies. Um, and then I sold seeds and helped start the uh, Wisconsin Hemp Scientific, the uh, testing lab and extractor in Milwaukee. So Shane and I go out and do a tour of the farms in December, hoping to buy harvest. We walked away from literally tons. It's like, you guys totally screwed the pooch. You have no idea what you're doing. Oh, one guy who, we, God bless him, Tim. Tim had six and a half tons sitting <laughs> <clears throat> this is like a week before Christmas, and Homeboy can't sell it. And so we stop at the farm, and it's sitting in those big fabric totes on a cement floor with open sides under a roof. It's it's 30 degrees outside. Tim, what's the problem here? Well, I pulled it in. Oh, when we met him <laughs> at this gas station in, in a small cars, he opens the back of his SUV, and there's two chainsaws. I burned out the first one. I had to buy another one. You did your harvest with the chainsaw. Let's go see this. Oh, no. Disaster. They rhyme. No. So he made the he, third-generation family farm in West Elbow, Wisconsin. Whatever. Um, whole farm is watching to see because if you do it, I'll do it next year. So he comes back from San Diego. 
to grow hemp on the family farm. He grew pot in California, he knew better. He left his crop, because he was using a chainsaw and doing it solo, I always say better two days early than one day late. He left it in too long, it's Wisconsin, it snowed, the flower in the field froze, the water burst the cells, and it molded. So we come in, and there's six and a half tons in open totes, air with the roof on a cement floor that's wicking. So you, it looks great. Six and a half tons, what's not to like? You break a bag open, and Shane and I are all toxic pot growers. You break open a bud. Oh, sorry. Now we know why everyone else passed up on it. Um, and that's going to happen all over. You're going to have people thinking they're drying field corn. Oh, those terpenes we talked about, they begin to evaporate at 117 degrees Fahrenheit. So no propane construction heater, no fan, no dehumidifier. What do you do? 60-60, what do you mean? 60 degrees, 60% humidity. Airflow, no fan, because the wind will blow the terps off. And I want to see terps in your lab results, or I'm going to give you 25% less money. So if we're going to screw the harvest up, and I'm going to go in and buy it and pay them a dollar. Sorry. What did you ask? Why am I talking about this again? <laughs> oh, Portland! Oh, Oregon grows off the hook! Most of what I get from Oregon, I'd rather buy local. While we have sealed up lab results, COAs, Certificate of Authenticity, for Maine and Colorado, arch enemy, um, my posse prefers to buy from Cascade. Is there anything that, like, all of those <laughs> uh, so part of it is oh boy oh the economics of, of the of the crop so extractors making oil for the co2 <laughs> medicine market like to see four percent cbd or higher um they are also concerned about the quality of the crop not just the raw numbers um uh while the FDA has control over animal feed and veterinary issues, I have two and four-legged patients, so I make medicine for humans and other smarter animals. Um, I also, uh, you can also use it as bedding and as animal food. I saw a company in Indo Expo last year. They had, um, they were smart. They extracted CBD out infused the spent material to make it a little more potent, went through a pelletizer as if filling for a wood stove and sold it as animal feed. And one of the bullet points was 23% protein. So some of us are looking at animal food from, because horses are big and I have horse clients, um, I can use 2% in skim milk, pelletize it, and that's perfectly good food and slash medicine for larger animals. Well, I've got, I've had cat and dog and horse clients all along. I mean, not quite six years, but. Oh, uh, your neighbor's dog. Yeah, there's been a couple houses, several houses, two in Cleveland, where I walk up and a dog jumps at me. You know, that's one of your patients. Oh, really? Didn't meet you before. Looked pretty healthy to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you can use it for fiber. Oh, I also have, um, there are people using hemp waste to make paper. 
not so much for the New York Times, but art paper. Um, uh, I actually have some, and it's from someone I met at a trade show from the East Coast, who um, uh, the print that I bought was of a Buddha, because she and I are both Buddhists. And, so you've got, oh, what about, and I have a mantra in Tibet on my arm. But there are artists. Oh, and Levi's is now talking about a process to ret hemp fiber with less water faster to blend with cotton, and they've got it 31%, 69% hemp to cotton, and they're aiming for 50-50, and they swear you can't tell the difference. Um, so yeah, is there stuff to do with it? Not necessarily summer of 2019, but 2020, yes. That's the public thing. My posse, LeBlanc, is offering post-harvest services to other hemp farmers, beginning with drying facilities. But when I do a forward, con so a futures contract is, <clears throat> I'm Campbell's, you grow tomatoes. I'm gonna give you money now to grow a crop for me, but you owe me the crop either way, and we're gonna settle the money now. You hope that you turn a profit when you give me the crop or you're underwater. A future contract um, is a template through a server and non-negotiable, the money moves first. A forward contract is the inverse. Um, Ryan and, and uh, uh, Jim are going to grow hemp in Oregon. I gave them seeds. I get 10% of the harvest plus gleaning rights. When you're through taking stuff out of the field, we have the right to come through and take what you don't want. So, yes, we have uses for waste, and our goal is to have a couple more pickup trucks and a trailer and some tools to go in and say, what's left? Oh, okay, here's, to me, it's a buffalo, much like the milk model. I make medicine out of the roots. While I believe in no-till, if I can get five or 600 pounds of roots put away from this year's harvest, I can do that. I'm also, so most, so most hemp grown for CBD extraction is grown five feet on center, what I call Christmas tree farm style. Why? To get maximum flower yield, you want side growth on the lateral branches. The downside is you can't. there's no mechanized harvest tool that does that. So if you grow for maximum yield, it's like harvesting wine grapes. It's a manual hand process which means there's a ceiling on how much you can grow because as you scale, your labor costs go up. So we're gonna try a different approach. And I thought this through and people don't discount it out of hand, but they go, dude, I don't know. Instead of five feet to encourage lateral growth, I wanna do five inches on center, much like wheat. And yes, it will eventually lend itself to mechanical John Deere if they had it kind of thing. But um, by growing it so close together, I will get the opposite of a lot of side growth. I'm going to get long, tall fibers, hopefully 10, 12, 15 feet tall. I can then cut the top six or eight inches off. If this is um, Christmas tree farm style, um, I call this birthday candle style. Not five feet, five inches on center. I'm gonna get no side growth because there's no, no light. I'm gonna get long, tall fibers with a long interstitial length between the nodes. 
which lends itself to fiber. So we're going to come through and take the top six or eight inches off. We're going to take the candle off the birthday candle. Dry that, taking our time, coming back a week or ten days later to cut six inches above the ground to get the stalks, which are going to be long and tall with very little leaf, let alone side branch growth. Um, that's for the fiber market. And then come through and grab the roots, because that's what Grandpa Jerry makes medicine out of. So we're going to plant, actually I'm going to do four inches, five inches, six inches, and try and figure out this first year what the optimal spacing is to get a dual-use crop. Even though it's not a fiber cultivar, there's a huge demand for fiber, and most people growing Christmas tree style don't have long interstitial fiber. And it's hard to, to they look like tumbleweeds when you strip it. So how do you gang that up? Everyone rolls it up and puts it under a blue part, like alfalfa. The fiber processor is saying, I don't touch it. I think birthday candle style for some of the crop makes sense. And so there's no John Deere attachment. You can't repeat this. Uh, my partner Shane worked the NASCAR circuit for 16 years and then worked for Boeing for 20. Homeboy can make anything. John Deere, oh, his, he grew up going to Grandma and Grandpa's farm in Minnesota every summer until he got a license and did NASCAR. So he knows farm stuff. Um, there is no John Deere attachment, but 75% of the hops in the world is grown in the U.S. 75% of the U.S. hops is grown in Yakima County, Washington. There are people in Yakima who are working on, they look and go, hey, wait, you can't harvest this stuff? You know what a bale breaker is? Who knows what a bale breaker is? Come on, you agronomist. A bale breaker is that looks like a cherry picker for the utility company that cuts hops. You know, hops is grown on wires on telephone poles. You should know this, homeboy. My wife, ex-wife's from Salem, the Willamette Valley. Oh, yeah, second hops region in the, in the country. So they have these things um, that bale breakers and, and top cutters that are these scissors-like things that cut off the flowers of these hops. What are they? 20, 25 feet tall? They're huge. They're, you see that they're telephone poles with wires stretched. Think of the trellis for wine grapes on stairways or, or Paul Bunyan. They're huge. But how do you pick that? They have specialized machines. So rumor has it there are wizards out there building hop-picking machines. They look at the, like the Mennonites go, you can't grow hemp, watch us. The Yakima gang's like, how do you cut something high like that? We've done that for generations with hops. And hops and cannabis are cousins, botanically. So um, that and most of the beer in the world is made not with loose hops, not the cores. It's either pelletized so they can shovel it or CO2 extraction. Sound familiar? The same way cannabis is used to make CBD oil, the very same machines make the oil used to make here. So there are wizards like close to me in Yakima who said, oh, you guys do 20 liter runs making CO2 oil. We do hundreds of pounds a day. So if you have 30 acres of hemp in a railroad car, come back in three days. Dude. So we're at a point now where we're seeing cultivars get stable. 
Wisdom is it takes seven generations to get a cultivar that's you can count on. Many of the hops, uh, hemp cultivars are two or three or four years old at that, number one. Number two, processing is the bottleneck after harvesting, and it needs to make that leap in order to be profitable. So whoever invests in the machinery to do what hops does to make beer will make the successful product. So yeah, so your state is Oregon. <laughs> Oregon. And I've worn out my welcome. I brought two uh, uh, of the columns I've written. Oh, it is uh, in Northwest Lee, but they're all on this website. Again, thank you for your time. Power of the people. Healthcare right now. Oh, just a crazy guy, that's all. You've been listening to Jerry Whiting from LeBlanc CNE in Seattle. Special thanks to Butterfly Sessions for their support. Join us again for another edition of the LeBlanc CNE podcast.